Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damon Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, got to be one of the best episodes ever of this thing. John Ross Bowie of the show Big Bang Theory, of uh, well, Road Trip, of like just you, so many things, so many different things you've seen him in. Also, though, of the brand new play, Four Chords and a Gun, which is playing in Toronto, going to be playing in Chicago soon, which is about the Ramones recording End of the Century with Phil Spector, but played in a band called Egghead, played a pop-punk band called Egghead, and was like a CBGB's youth crew kid. This is incredible, this episode. Get ready. There's a lot of fun stuff. It's like it's like I'm sitting down with a guy that I've been friends with my whole life. It's like, a, I, it, you'll hear in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, Damien Abraham, oh no, uh, turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on various forms of social media at Leftford Damien. I, I got to apologize. I'm going to interrupt this right now and apologize for the state of my voice. Uh, I just got off vacation with the family and I got right on a tour and the combination of the flights and everything and, and, and yelling on stage. I'm going to be honest, the yelling on the stage doesn't help. Uh, I've, I've shot my voice. So, it, please excuse this kind of really. It, it might sound a little sexy. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm kind of feeling a little sexy over here myself right now. I'm feeling myself right now over here with this voice. But uh, I apologize if you don't like it. So once again, I'm very sorry. Uh, if you would like to uh, find us on Facebook, we're on Facebook, Turned Out of Punk, or Facebook.com slash Turned Out of Punk. The page is run by my brother and show producer and, and this week guest booker, Tristan Abraham. I love you, buddy. Thank you for doing this and, and all the work you do on this podcast. Um, and he will get in touch with me and, and you can get in touch with me and we'll, we'll communicate. We can communicate. There are ways for us to communicate. If you want to support this show, though, the best way of doing that is by telling all your friends about it and, and and if you use a service that lets you rate these things, rate this podcast really high. Tell, tell everyone you love it. That's the best way to support it. And speaking of support, this thing would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came on board this thing a while ago, and they said, do what you do. Just do your podcast. We just want to support you doing this podcast. And that's what they've done. They really are completely hands off. Like I talked to friends of mine who have sponsor relationships and it's like, wow, you've got a lot of commitments there. Vans, I, I really thank you so much for letting me just do this the way I want to do it. And I'll be at the House of Vans coming up. There's going to be some House of Vans stuff all summer long. Really fun events. Uh, I just recently went to the departed van, House of Vans in Brooklyn. That was there for years. Got to play with the Cro-Mags there, play with Pup there. I saw some unbelievable shows. Or Pennywise and Sick of It All, like all sorts of stuff there. And so they do these House of Vans parties. They're free. You just come there and have a good time. And, and I'll be at them doing live turnout of punk stuff. So anyway, thank you, Vans. 
also we've recently lost a Patreon. I'm not really pushing it that hard because uh, I probably should be, but no, I just, you know, I don't want to push it on you. If you want to support this show financially, you can do that by going over the Patreon thing. We've got some gifts and some bonus content for you. And I'm going to be putting up a lot more bonus content this week as well. And some exclusive podcasts are going to be dropping very soon over there. So check that out. Patreon.com slash turned out of punk. And I've got Lego minifigs. There are, there are turned out of punk toys now. So you can get a turned out of punk figure and then just smash every other Lego with it just because it's the best figure and it's got a weapon. So it's cool. Not nah, weapons don't make you cool, but minifigs make you cool. So that's on the Patreon. You can find all that stuff. Okay. On to today's show. Today on the show, we've got. Oh, I, I, before we get into the show, uh, also for you longtime listeners, we have finally, finally uh, announced the launch of the TV show, The Wrestlers. The Wrestlers is a TV show that I made where I went around the world uh, with with incredible filmmakers, Nathan and Jeff from Salazar Films, and an incredible crew, Yuji, Colin, Grady, or Sarah, we all we all worked on this project and, and made this thing that uh, I'm really really proud of, and you can check out on uh, at the Wrestlers TV on Instagram and 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 Twitter. We're going to be posting lots of cool stuff from that thing. Incredible photos, some of the most beautiful photos uh, I've ever seen of wrestling, and yeah, it, I'm really excited for you to see the show. I'm really really proud of the show. The chop trailer is a little silly. The show's very serious. I, I'm I'm stoked for you to all see it. Okay, uh, that's it. Now on to today's show. Today on the show, John Ross Bowie. Now, if you are not familiar with this guy by name, I guarantee you're familiar with him by face. He has been in so many things. Definitely. Super well-known and, and very well-merchandised as well uh, as a uh, reoccurring character on The Big Bang Theory. And he is just, you know, like this this, you know, this actor's actor, you know, someone you see in so many things. Comedian's comedian. Uh, someone who's been doing this for a long time. And someone that I, I'd heard was into punk rock but had no idea how deep it goes. This is a super fun one. We're talking about Bug Out Society on this episode, you know. We're talking about stuff that I don't think's ever come out on a turn out of punk episode until now. Uh, I, yeah, this is great. John has just written this brand new play four chords and a gun. And this is coming from a place of someone being a super fan of the Ramones. And he's written this play about one of the most fascinating contentious records in the Ramones catalog. And certainly one of the most storied recording sessions in punk rock history. And he's turned it into a play. It's running right now in Toronto. And then when it wraps up there, it's going to be going to Chicago. Check uh, listings, get tickets for this thing uh, because it's, it's, it's punk made, you know, like this isn't someone just writing a play about something that happened in rock history. This is someone that grew up loving this band that grew up going to CBGBs. And yeah, also last night, my friend, Chris Minicucci, Cooch, shout out to Cooch comes up on the show a lot, was a former guest. He's a, you know, a record collector's record collector beyond reproach, uh, does radio Raheem and uh, part of the people that does painkiller records as well. Uh, he told, me that the breakdown show that we talk about this might have been the very first breakdown show. So I got to tell John that he was at the very first breakdown show. But anyway, you're going to hear that in a second. Uh, one note, I don't know what it is about me and screwing up the discography of the Vatican Commandos, but I do it again. And uh, yes, once again, you, if you listen to recent episodes, I'm, I'm very excited about the discovery of the Moby doing the art. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Screwed up again. Uh, Rob Zombie doing the art for the Vatican Commando 7-inch. So, yeah, I bring it up again, you know. And that's what I do. Bring up things multiple times sometimes. Anyway, that's it. Today, 
you will have a good time with this show. I promise you. Uh, it's short, but John will be back for more. I guarantee that. Oh, I guarantee that. So sit back, relax, and enjoy John Ross Bowie on Turned Out a Punk. <coughs> No, no. Are we rolling? Yeah, we're rolling now. You guys, um, in the way you've you you push the boundaries of hardcore while still one hundred percent being hardcore is just so exciting to me. And those are the bands; those are the new bands that I enjoy. The bands that are still putting out records, and it's definitely punk, but it doesn't have anything generic about it. It, it it's you guys. Uh, Japan droids come to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know beach slang? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, beach slang are an, and another band that is, and I think beach slang are pretty close to my age. They're in their forties. Um, and uh, who's that? Oh, that's this bears. I was going to be like, I don't think I'm even on the Wi-Fi. Yeah, that's okay. I can find that way to edit that out. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, bands that are 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 still keeping that energy, but surprising me with chords that I was like, oh, I didn't see that chord coming at all. That's really exciting. Well. This is awesome to talk to you about this stuff because I do this podcast for a reason. And the reason is because I think there's like a, an interconnectedness that runs throughout everything cool within pop culture. And you're someone who I've seen in everything. Like everything. <laughs> but it's like Reno 911. A ton of Reno 911. Uh, yeah. And Road Trip. Like, yeah. you know, but I've seen you in everything over the years. And... and to find out that then you also played in all these punk punk bands, Egghead specifically, yeah, and that you are you know a punk rocker and a fan enough to want to do uh, a play about the most contentious Ramones album <laughs> in, in the pre late period Ramones catalog. Yeah, I mean. yeah, exactly. Uh, it's the one the one that um, is still considered a Ramones album, um, but yeah, there's a lot of arguing about it. Yeah, a lot of arguing. It's an amazing uh, record. I love, and I can't wait to get there with you on this. We'll work up to it. But we got to start the way that I start them all off, which is John. How'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Well. You you heard about it, you mm-hmm. know, in the media. I'm I'm I was born in '71, so I I'm I'm growing up when like local news programs start doing like who are the punks and are they coming for your kids? <laughs> but it was a total abstraction at that point. I remember some camp counselors doing a dance routine to Rockaway Beach. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> when I would have been like nine or ten, and I remember like, who's this? I was like, oh, this is the Ramones. Like, okay, that's I, a cool. I think camp. I like this. I think I like this very much. And it was it attracted me because a lot of the stuff that my folks listened to was just a lot of straight ahead 50s rock and roll mm-hmm. they had like just some sort of compilations of with like a little buddy holly and some elvis and like those those kind of like k-tell records of like the smash hits of the 1950s um and i heard the connective tissue between uh between the 50s rock and roll and the ramones but then when i started buying records myself um, and started to get into music sort of independently. Um, around eighth grade, I remember being in the Tower Records that was up near Lincoln Center. I, I grew up in, in New York City, and um, I remember seeing the first Ramones album on cassette, just, you know, that amazing cover of those guys just staring at you. And I, I flipped it over, and I, I have a visceral memory of throwing my head back and laughing at the title, Now I Want to Sniff Some Glue. <laughs> Which I still think is 
the funniest song title in the world. It's the now that takes it over the edge for me. You know, like, oh, what, what, what are we doing now? Well, like, I, I had to run some errands this morning. I had to run down to the hardware store. I should pick up a village voice. I uh, should probably get some coffee. And now I want to sniff some glue. And just, like, the way it's sort of an action item on the day's agenda <laughs> cracks me up. But you know, so D- funny. You know, for Dee that was definitely an action item on the agenda. Absolutely, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a thing I'm going to take care of at some point. And uh, then I should probably meet my accountant after that. Um, yeah, it was just like this uh, uh, one of several errands of that day yeah. and then you go deeper and you know today your love tomorrow the world there's all this funny stuff on there and then I put it on and you know even the the jump from that record to to Rockaway Beach which is on the third record is huge I mean Blitz Creek Bop nothing sounds like it Blitz Creek Bop is an assault mm-hmm. and it I just loved the simplicity. I loved the humor. I loved Joey's voice. And so I started buying more Ramones records. And then I very specifically remember around that time, Spin Magazine did a 10th anniversary of Punk Issue that Joey was on the cover of. Okay. And I bought that. And that was sort of, that opened up a bunch of other doors because there was a John Holmstrom cartoon on the history of punk. Mm -hmm. And there was an interview with DOA. And that got me into the Canadians. That's all. Spin Magazine... You know, like now print form long gone for it, but what a cool magazine for! They like, did some great work, some really cool stuff. I like, discovered some great stuff through them. That issue had a, had a, a review of the first Dead Milkman album. That's awesome. Um, and what was attracting me to punk rock initially was just the funny song titles. Mm-hmm. So between the Ramones and Dead Milkman, I was like, oh, these are these are really funny bands. I'm I'm really enjoying this. Um, but yeah, they introduced me to a lot of really cool stuff. They're, they're, they get knocked about a lot, um, and I don't know that history has been particularly kind to spin, but at its peak in the 80s, it was relevant and handy and was covering stuff that Stone wouldn't go near. It was owned by Bob Guccione Jr., right? Yes, it was. That was one of the things that was holding it up from prestige, was that a, it was the son of a pornographer who was running the place. Yeah, do you think he had good taste in music? Like, do you think, I remember Guns N' Roses beef with them big time. They had that song where they get in the ring. Oh, is that about him? Yeah, this goes out to you, Bob Guccione Jr. Oh my God! Expand what you pissed off because your dad gets more pussy. <laughs> he, Bob Guccione Jr. had a couple things wrong with him. Um, <laughs> uh, he, uh, he, for one thing, he he had done like a semester in London in college and held onto a British accent for the rest of his life, which is uh, the, the move. That's that's the capital punishment. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a war crime. You just shouldn't be allowed to do that at all. Um, and. There's one there's one issue of Spin where they try to get a Fugazi interview. Do you remember this one? And the oh, whole yeah. issue, the whole article is just this guy trying to track down Fugazi and Fugazi's like, "Yeah, we really don't want to talk to you guys." <laughs> it's it's the it's the best non-Fugazi interview out there. It's so funny. And and finally they track down Gee and he's like, yeah, you know, we just see a lot of like liquor and cigarette ads in your magazine. That's really not for us. Best of luck though. You're perfectly <laughs> polite and cool, but not having it. Um, but that 10th year anniversary of punk issue with Joey on the cover is a that's a watershed moment for mm-hmm. me. It mm-hmm. really I and it got me into like you know, I, I knew I knew Rock Lobster, but that got me into like the the early B-52s records and um it was it opened up a ton of doors. And then from there, there were some punks at my school, but I wasn't really friends with them. What was New York like at that time? Because it's like kind of a, a different New York than you see today. Oh, right? God, yes. And growing up there as a kid must have been an interesting place to kind of navigate. It was a lot. You know, it was... I'm, I'm really just 
in my recent years coming to terms with the sort of traumatic aspects of growing up in New York and, uh, uh, you know, yeah, you, you would get mugged. You yeah. would get mugged. Mm-hmm. You were going to get mugged. You would come home and find your apartment ransacked. It was it was rough. Mm-hmm. It was a rough place to grow up. It was also um, much cheaper, and as such, um, there was a lot more creativity going on in the city because people could afford to live there and maybe not make a ton of money at the outset. Um, so it was a very... It was a fertile time for music and art, mm-hmm. and... Um, I think it's very telling that we haven't had a band come out of New York since uh, TV on the radio or the last band to come out of New York, last band that really like broke to come out of New York. Um, And before that, it's the Strokes who were all born of money. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know how you survive as as a struggling band in New York anymore. I think you live in Jersey. Well, that's why I wonder when every time I'm in New York and I'm you know shopping at like a a, a drugstore or at at like a, going to a fast food restaurant or something, it's like where do where do the people that work here live now? Yeah, I know it's very hard to be middle class in that city. I could only it's yeah, very very hard to be middle class. I have an easier time being middle class in L.A., which tells mm-hmm. you a great deal about about mm-hmm. New York. But um, yeah, so what was going on in New York at the time was uh, musically was the the big uh, straight edge hardcore scene, mm-hmm. um, and. Seabees was draconian about their 16 and up rule. You had to be 16 to go to a show. But once I turned 16, I started going pretty frequently. And I saw a lot of those bands. And it was never really my stuff, but I liked seeing live music. What was your first concert that you went to, even prior to that? My first, well, my first concert concert, concert. Um, is spring 1984. And it's the Go-Go's with special guest In Excess at Radio City Music Hall. That's a punk show. That's a punk show. Yeah, That's definitely. That's a punk show. That's the Go-Go's on their, on their uh, talk show tour. Um, you know, and I don't even think I realized how fucking punk the Go-Go's were at yeah. the time. But I liked that guitar sound on that first record, mm-hmm. you know. And it's a, it's a nice, chewy guitar sound that wouldn't sound out of place um, uh, on a lot of the other albums I like. Um, and they, you know, they... I, I don't think I realized that Belinda Carlisle had been briefly in the germs. Yeah. I didn't understand any of the context of it, but I liked these. I liked the the hooks and I liked the guitars. Where would you like? Where were you first exposed to the Go Go's? Was it just on TV or on just rock on radio? radio. Yeah. yeah, just on radio. They were you know they were pretty huge at the time. They mm-hmm. were they had a, a, a few hits and nascent MTV was playing them a lot because they were sort of a female Duran Duran. Like look at these these five pretty girls who are doing their own band. Yeah. They are they remain the only band. To only all female band to write their own songs and have a number one record, really? Yeah. To this day, that's to this day. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, they are definitely, you know, like they they did a record on Stiff Records. They're, they're, it's like they get always contextualized as that as that pop band, but like, yeah, it's amazing to think of them as like a, a, a pioneering band, but also a punk band. They were in that weird squat, the Canterbury in yeah. LA. They would, you know, they would play shows at the Starwood, um, all the places that are gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's great, um, do you read the John Doe book? Yes. Uh, the audio book is fantastic because they all read their own oh, chapters. So awesome. Jane reads her own chapter. So you're just basically, I, I spent like an afternoon just driving around listening to Jane Wheedland tell stories and it was magical. It would be um, like that would be an amazing app to have walking around LA where it just like pops up when you're at the, that would the be great. like, hey, like, you're oh, right near the mask. Yeah, the Canterbury, you know? <laughs> yeah. That would be great. I should design that if I had any skill in that in that area. Here, yeah, yeah, exactly. That would be turned out a punk apps division if there was one. But here's the here's the the crazy thing, and I'm, and I'm saying this as a I'm, I'm pandering to um to uh, to the Canadian audience here, but 
so I, I didn't really connect with with the the punks in my uh, in my school who were, who were they were big potheads and they were like full on like mohawks and and I, I was cordial with them mm-hmm. you know but I I didn't see them at the shows and I just for whatever reason we we just never really connected so I put an ad looking for pen pals in Flipside that's yeah and um, uh, just listing the bands I was into and I got a pen pal who lived in Kitchener. Really? Yeah. Um, which he claimed was a twin city of Toronto. Is that true? Well, twin city of Waterloo. Okay. <laughs> it's, um, it's close enough. There are people that do make the commute. but Okay, but it's not like St. Paul is to Minneapolis. No, no, no. no. Okay, well, he made it seem like it was like St. Paul is to Minneapolis, and I, I didn't know enough to call him out on it yet. But we started exchanging tapes. And um, I sent him a lot of the New York stuff that was going on. And um, so like Youth of Today, Gorilla yeah. Biscuits, uh, Bowl, that, that sort of straight edge skinhead stuff that was, that was, that would play in the Lower East Side, but everybody was from the outer boroughs. Yeah. They were all from like Connecticut. working class. Are they from Connecticut? Yeah. They're from like deep, deep Queens. <laughs> yeah. Um, War Zone, all that stuff. Wait, we got to back up. I want to be, I'm sorry, let's finish this pin pal story, but then I got to go back because this is also bread and butter turned out of punk stuff that we're just glossing over. So okay. go on to this pin pal. What was his name? Do you remember? Uh, Andy Cock. I don't know if, um, I, I have not, I, I tried looking him up yesterday because I figured yeah. he was going to come up today. Um, if you're listening, Andy, say what up yeah. on Twitter. Um, uh, but he got me into stuff that was not available in the States at all. So um, the Problem Children? Yep. Who are the Problem Children? From Hamilton. Oh, from Hamilton? Yep. Right. Okay. So he got me into the Problem Children. He got me into, um, well, No Means No, we're on Alternative Tentacles, so you could mm-hmm. get their stuff in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, who else did he introduce me to? Uh, Canadian Subhumans. Um, he got me into SNFU. What are your thoughts on the Canadian subhumans? Because that is a topic that comes up on this show. Are you Canadian or British subhumans? Um, you know, I, I was never a ravenous fan of either, okay. frankly. But um, uh, I, I think probably just because I, I found them first, the Canadians. And okay. I'm not again. Yep. I'm not pandering. No, I'm not hey, trying hey. to pander here. Hey, I I, have, I keep going back and forth. I'm Canadian and I love the Canadian subhumans. But I recently got to play with the British subhumans, so I had to concede that they were. Pretty fantastic. Oh, that's as well, great. So. Oh, you know who else he got me into? Um, were uh, and I, I just found a bunch of their stuff on iTunes. Was the Asexuals? Incredible band. Who Absolutely turned into the Doughboys, Dough right? Yeah, it's that. It's that way. Asexuals first, and then Doughboys, right? Yeah. And 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 uh, John Kastner's, I believe, wife was on Mad Men. Uh, I didn't watch Mad. I can't. And now I'm blanking on her name. Oh, I got to. I got to track that she down. She was uh, John Draper's uh, mistress for a while. Oh no shit. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Wow, I gotta look that up. It always comes back to punk, you know. It always does. It always <laughs> does. That's so cool. But yeah, so I have. Um, I, I guess for an American, I'm a little more well versed in Mulroney era punk rock than. That's uh, my bread and butter. I must be. Oh, it must absolutely. be your shit. That yeah. must be extremely your shit. Was Sons of Ishmael on that tape or the Nutshell? Oh my god. Sons of Ishmael. I haven't thought about them in years. Yeah, they were. There were several tapes. And what was the other band you mentioned? The Nunfuckers. Nunfuckers. Yeah, I remember the Nunfuckers. I, Nunfuckers. I, I found myself just because I love that name. The name's incredible. The name yeah. was incredible. Um, yeah, I had I had a Nunfuckers seven inch. Yeah, um, you had that single. That's yeah. a very valuable record now. It's somewhere. It's somewhere. Hmm. Um, it's it's uh, it, I. That's tucked away somewhere. Um, but yeah, the Nunfuckers. So again, what got me into um, 
a lot of punk rock was how funny it was. Yeah. And that turned me uh, eventually to the Dickies, um, whom I've seen a bunch of times since then. You know, they're a local band for me now. And um, who else made me made me laugh a lot? Um, there's just something. It's just, it's, the thing that that I that strikes me about punk rock still is just how funny it is mm-hmm. how how much there because when you're going for a necessarily smaller audience you're allowed to be more niche and more specific and that's where comedy lives and it i just there are dead milkman songs that still make me laugh out loud <laughs> it's it's there's just and so much of the the work of the front men was so goddamn funny uh yeah it was a very easy transition when 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 punk rock was done with me to like go into improv and and stuff like that felt like a very smooth transition for me well there's also it's like there is like you're saying there's such a sense of humor to it like right back to the ramones right yeah like it's uh it's like one of the few musical genres that takes itself completely seriously but also has a sense of humor at the same time about itself and about everything around it exactly yeah and i um the that sort of wit and that kind of like dumb smart sense of humor was something that really appealed to me and then when we finally when when i was in a band in my 20s and we we put out a posthumous cd we called it dumb songs for smart people which really could be the name of 90 other punk albums (laughs) it's a shame we got to it first because there's a ton of bands (laughs) that have the right to that album title um we just happened to to I think it was our guitarist who just hit the nail on the head with like, yeah, that's it. Dumb sounds for smart people. That's that's the gig. Yeah. <laughs> were you already into comedy? Like you mentioned getting into improv afterwards, but what were your tastes in comedy kind of growing up? Um, um, pretty generic stuff. I, I think by the time I got into punk rock, I would have been old enough to stay up and watch Saturday Night Live. I would have been following a lot of the 80s stand-up boom. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have been like taping specials off of HBO and things like that. And then I would have been into the albums that my parents had. So, you know, a lot of George Carlin, um, a lot of um, uh, the button-down mind record from Bob Newhart, um, a lot of Cosby. Um, <laughs> he says under his breath. <laughs> yeah. A lot of early Cosby before we knew. Before we knew. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, and I, I've just always been a, a, a comedy fan. Mm-hmm. And it was it, inter- it struck me, when I started to get into punk rock, it struck me how many people didn't want their music to be funny. And that was, like, where people got off. Like, no, I like comedy, and I like Van Halen. I like comedy, and I like Aerosmith. I don't want to put those two tastes together. I'm like, well, what if you had music that really made you laugh? Like, no, that's Weird Al. I'm not interested. I'm like, okay, that's, but there's there's so much more. <laughs> there's a middle ground. Yeah, and I love Weird Al. I, I'm not, you know. Um, have you gotten into Weird Al with your kids? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's oh great for gosh. kids, isn't oh, it? Uh, their first concert it. was Weird Al at the Greek Theater. Really? My kid's first rock concert. How awesome is that? Uh, that's an amazing art. My, my son's first rock concert, we were telling him the other day, was the band AFI. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they played a best. And he's like, how old was I? I'm like, six weeks Oh my we god! We had little headset on him on the stage. I when I saw you guys at Merge at Matador Twenty One, um, he came out on stage, didn't he? With, yeah, with, with headphones. Uh, yeah, and this now explains everything because my wife met you and Rob at the show backstage. I think that's possible. Yeah, we were at a couple of the after parties. Yeah, because yeah, then my wife came back and she's like, "I met these guys from TV at the show backstage," and I'm like, "What?" I can't believe where where was everyone? I think I don't think I met you there. I don't think we met. No, no I would. I, I I met 
that was where I met Mac for the first time, yeah. and I met Laura there, and I'd met John. Um, he had he had been he'd very graciously talked to me at after a show because he's the nicest guy in the world. Well, in the comedy world, right? Like, yeah, there's, he's there's huge. A in comedy the comedy world. connection, yeah, there's right? There's a massive, yeah. you know, I, and I was a big fan of the stuff he does with Sharpling. They shouted me out on Best Show last year. I was a I was a, a joke on I was a punchline on Best Show, and it was career highlight for <laughs> oh. me. Oh, my worst roommate was called in as some agent or something, and he was making fun of Sharpling for being so pathetic. He was trying to get his spec scripts to John Ross Bowie, and I was like, I have arrived. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> That is, that is too funny that you're also a fought. You know, like yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. No, yeah. he, the the highlight of of you know maybe this podcast is uh, John called up as the um, as the uh, music scholar guy, oh, God. the one who goes on for rock rock and roll. Yeah, 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 no, no, not rock rock no. roll. The guy who's like who's like the the music snob, the one who calls up and he's like, oh, pretty good set. You played a Rolling Stones song that's like, you know, kind of kind of pedestrian, but it's oh. okay. So is that the same guy who says that Madness invented ska? No. This that's is the, the, okay, that's okay, the other yeah, guy. This okay. is the one who builds up and the reveal is that he's now super into to Limp Bizkit. Right. Yes. <laughs> and but he called up as that character and schooled me on punk Amazing. on my 200th episode. Was, Amazing. So, <laughs> Now I got to get back to this yeah. tape that you this tape exchange you had going on in Kitchener. Yeah, you you mentioned what was on your tapes. How'd you get into that stuff? What was your first time going to CB's like, and what were the bands you saw? Do you remember? The first show at CB's would have been summer of nineteen eighty seven because I've just turned sixteen, and it is a weird mix of local bands and one touring act. First band on the bill was a New York band called Breakdown. Yes, um, you remember Breakdown? Oh, that was deep cut. My first show ever with one of my first hardcore bands was opening for the Breakdown reunion, which weirdly came to Toronto. What? Yeah, I think it was That's a mistaken crazy. Booking. But yeah, I love Breakdown. Breakdown Absolutely. were really fucking fun. They Phenomenal were Powder Keg Live, and then I don't remember who the, ne- the other three bands were. Jeff Perlin, also hilarious front person. Yeah, like you know, really, he was really team. funny, really good banter. I remember that he had really good banter, and then. Three bands played. I don't remember who they were. Um, you know, let's guess and say Raw Deal and Underdog were in there somewhere. You know, and and then you're describing the best show. <laughs> um, it was you know, there's a lot of the same. Like I feel like Token Entry was on every. Did you see bill. Altercation ever? Um, I saw their graffiti everywhere. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know that I actually ever saw Altercation. Okay. They got banned from CBS pretty early on because of the. Um, because there was an altercation, I believe. And I feel like they were one of the bands that got shunted over to the pyramid okay. because they didn't want to, they couldn't play at CB's anymore, if that's correct. Okay. That, that kind of hits with, fits with the history. Anyway, so the New York kids cleared out, all these suburban kids came in, and the adolescents came on stage. Oh, so it was like a completely different audience. Completely different audience. Wow. Completely different audience. And I loved the Orange County stuff. Mm-hmm. I really, for whatever reason, it re- I really dug. Adolescence and DI and uh, and social distortion and and that kind of like because I found it it was the same sort of thing I liked in all the other stuff is it, it was really hooky yeah and um, there was something vaguely Beach Boysy about it yeah. in the distance and certainly um, the harmonies you know yeah yeah the harmony and they remember the, oh, they opened with No Way which okay, is yeah. as good an opener as you're going <laughs> to get ever and it was. Um, but again, I, I was the only constant. I was like, I was there for the first band. I was there for the last band. Everybody else switched. It was like a new shift came in. It was really like all the all the uh, hardcore kids punched out and went back to Queens, and then yeah. all these kids from Jersey came in. And I was like, fuck it, I'm here for the whole day. I don't care. Um, 
Where were you getting into music at this point? Like, you know, because obviously this stuff's not played. Were you into community radio or hearing college radio? You could, on a clear day, you could kind of get WNYU, yeah. which was NYU station, and they had a show called Crucial, Crucial Chaos. Crucial Chaos, absolutely. With, um, what was her name? Squid. Squid, but there's a woman who hosted too. Oh, um, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, yeah, that, um, I'll fix this in the intro. Okay, I will put I'll put a proper note. Okay, to say, but that because she is legendary. I've only heard it through tapes. Like people tape traded those tapes. Oh, those really? Shows. Yeah, like, that's great. And and legendary sets, and you know, like the there's you know the tape of the infamous sick of it all born against debate. Oh God, I remember hearing Murphy's Law on there, and uh, you know Murphy's Law, who it almost yeah. looked like Murphy's Law were going to break for a moment, like mm-hmm. something was really mm-hmm. going to happen there for a moment. Um, they went on the Beastie Boys tour, right? They were yeah. the opener act on that. Yeah, yeah, they were on, and they opened for they toured with Fishbone, I feel mm-hmm. like at one point. Um, they they had there was some legitimate crossover potential for mm-hmm. a moment there. They were. They were they were a fun live act. They were you you couldn't you you always ended up seeing Murphy's Law at one point or another. They were always going to be on some bill, and I saw them on a great bill with uh, the Dickies one Halloween. That's um, a double just, bill. That's a, that's a fun night out. That was a fun October thirty first. What did Jimmy do on stage that night? Did he have any bizarre antics? Um, uh, you know, I, I remember him. You know, because they their whole hook was like they drank killer beer, which was allegedly beer laced with PCP, which was the the go to <laughs> drug in the eighties. I've never tried it myself, but. There's a lot of songs about PCP. <laughs> a lot of songs about PCP. A lot of songs um, about that dust. Yeah, yeah, a lot about that dust. And um, uh, he claimed to be dosed while he was on stage. I don't know if he was. I remember they they played the Monster Mash at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> I remember they played the Monster Mash at midnight, and that was fun. Um, but um, how did we... Oh, so I was getting into music. You know, it, it's so weird. So you could occasionally get NYU, but it was really dependent on the weather. It really because that was not a particularly big signal, and NYU or New York is the you know, the biggest radio market in the country, so the bandwidth is not that strong. So if I if I literally was in the southernmost room of the apartment in my mom's bedroom doing my homework, I could hear WNYU on her clock radio. Okay, so that got me into some stuff. The rest of it was just word of mouth. Word you of would mouth. get into like. You'd read Flipside, and they would compare a band that you didn't know to a band you did know. Like, oh, the Toy Dolls are in English Dickies, therefore I will like the Toy Dolls. Go to the import section of Tower Records, get the Toy Dolls. Yeah. But I bought a lot of records just blind, mm-hmm. just based on song titles or recommendations. I, I very specifically remember getting into Dag Nasty because... Um, Maximum said they sounded like Husker Du meets Minor Threat. I was like, I want to try that. Okay, and that's a pretty accurate description. It really is, it right? Really it's really good. They're going to be and, doing. And Dag Nasty, I got to. I never saw them with Dave, but I saw them with Peter a couple times. And they were. Did you ever see Dag Nasty live in that era? No. Oh shit! They no. were fucking great. I love that band. They too. were tight as a fist. Yeah. They were really fucking good. I remember talking to Brian Baker as a kid one time about them, and he was like, "We could have been Pearl Jam," and I like, I'm like that. It could have. You, you know, know, I don't know. There was a bunch of things wrong with. I think the they, the move off Discord to Giant. Mm-hmm. Uh, proof of the fact that it was a bad move is that you can't find that record on any of the streaming services. Yes, yeah. yeah, still this you day. You can't find Field up. Day fucking anywhere. Yeah. You have to go on YouTube where somebody like posts it until they take it down. Um, but that's an underrated record. They chops for days. Those guys. They, I we actually I. I Hung out with a buddy of mine who interviewed Dag Nasty after one of their CBs matinees, and we went into their van. And I had just lost my glasses in the pit, and I had a little little cut here on my cheek. And Doug Carrion, who was playing bass for them at the time, got me some ice, and we sat and we we talked. And it was it was a watershed moment for me because it really reminded me of the 
how there was really no curtain between performer and consumer in punk rock Mm -hmm. in a way that my friends who were just into pop were never going to know. You could stop Joey Ramone on 8th Street on St. Mark's Place and talk to him, and he would talk to you. He wouldn't shake your hand, but he would talk to you. And that... That was so fascinating to me, the fact that like there was no gatekeeper. You could just wander up to Peter Court and be like, I want to interview you guys. And he would go, sure, meet us in the van. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember um, I remember Brian Baker cautioning the guy I was with to go easy on the tattoos and keep it under the shirt sleeve, which is hilarious because he's covered now. Um, but I very remember specifically, he just had the famous Coca-Cola tattoo yeah. at the time and it was under his, it was concealed by a t-shirt. He had no job he, blockers yet. Yeah. <laughs> job blockers. Why have I never heard that term? Yeah, totally. He was still, he could still like work at a bank with what he had <laughs> yeah. at the time. Um, but um, that Dag Nasty show was a was a real um, real eye opener for me. Actually, literally, because I got my glasses knocked off. But um, um, it was um, it was just incredible to think like Here, I'm just sitting in the fucking band with these guys. I have the same experience all music fans have in that I am listening to these guys by myself in my living room. Yeah. But now I'm in the van in a way that the Duran Duran fans will never understand. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's like I don't think there's any other. There's no other. I can't think of another like culture where the star system is treated so negatively. And obviously, there are people in punk bands that kind of get kind of like the star trip eventually. Yeah. But like, still, you're right. Like, I that was the thing for me as a kid too. Like, you know, to go from an ACDC concert where I'm sitting like a quarter mile from yeah, stage, yeah. yeah, and then to being at a concert where I'm like talking to the band after the show is like a 14-year-old kid. They're sweating on you. They're sweating on you. Where'd you grow up? Toronto. Toronto proper? Yeah, I grew up right here. So it was like... So all the bands... So same thing. All the bands came to town. If you want to see a band, the band is coming to town. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's like, once again, the period you're talking about in New York is... It's such a fascinating period because you have these... You know, in addition to all the other things that rise around these things, like graffiti and and, and breakdancing and moshing and all this kind of stuff. But yeah... But you also have these these two youth movements where like youth are privileged, right? Like hip hop, rap, yep. and and punk and, and hardcore, they're both born in New York, really kind of like really formed in New York. Yeah. And both are like young people being told, like, yeah, you can do this, or young people just taking the reins and doing it themselves. And both and both have their roots in DC. Yeah. Both have their roots in with minor threat and trouble funk. Yeah. You can you can kind of point to like sort of the 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 template and then New York goes full New York and goes, well, what if we did that but more? You know? <laughs> what if we just made it? The thing that I love about, and I don't know if you've ever tried to explain this to someone who isn't familiar with punk rock, but if you've ever tried to explain Krishna core to someone <laughs> who doesn't who doesn't follow this shit at all, they look at you like you're having a stroke. They, It is the most confounding thing to explain to someone who wasn't there and didn't see it happening in slow motion. Well, that's because you're not just a punk, you're a hardcore kid which is like an even more, you know, hard, hardened, more obscure version of more like, but it's, it's wild. Like it's also wild to think of like how many people from comedy are at these places that would go on to do stuff in comedy or these shows. Did you know Michael Ian Black back then going to shows? No, I didn't. I didn't. We probably, I think we were in a lot of the same uh, yeah. rooms. Yeah. And I think, um, I never went out to city gardens cause I didn't have to. Yeah. But, um, John Stewart was a bartender there yeah. famously. Um, uh, I'm trying to think who I've discovered who I 
there's a guy named Andrew Reich who was an executive producer on Friends, and we discovered that we were on a bunch of the same shows. Hardcore he's got, kid too. Yeah, wow. yeah. Executive producer on Friends, and he's got a he hasn't thrown any of his stuff away. He's got a big old house, and in his big old house, he has massive seven inch collection. <laughs> that is awesome. But I'm sorry, um, no, he no, and no, I uh, he and I went to go see the Descendants together. We went to go see the Dickies at the Roxy together. He's my he's my punk rock dad friend in L.A. That's did you ever go to the Pyramid Club for shows? Um, I went to a couple shows and then I played there a few times in when I was in a band in my twenties. It was um, it was weird. I, I didn't love that venue for the stage was really high. Okay, and so you felt a little too far up. You know, CB's famously the stage was at your knee. Yeah, it's like a step stage. Yeah, yeah. basically, and and there was a that provided an intimacy. And the pyramid was as small as any other tiny nightclub, but the stage was all the way up. And like, why am I at this <laughs> arena rock height playing to twenty five people? What the fuck is wrong with this? So that always kind of threw me off a little bit. Um, uh, and I remember the there's a woman there who God, what was her name? She was a little odd though. But yeah, the Pyramid would do a lot of shows. The, the the place I went to a lot to see a lot of the touring bands was the Ritz. Yeah, uh, on Eleventh, which is which was Webster Hall, and that was once again Webster Hall. But in the eighties, it was the Ritz, and the Ritz was where I saw. Oh shit! I saw the Ramones there a bunch of times. That was the place that was their their home base, sort of. And I got to see them a couple times before Dee Dee left, mm-hmm. which was nice. Um, Did you ever see D.D. King stuff or anything? I, I mean, I, I have that record, but I never, <laughs> I never saw him live. It's I have a D.D. King shirt that my producer brought me back from the Berlin Museum. Um, if you own the D.D. King record, it is the worst record you own. It's a without, pretty bad record. It's really phenomenally. And somebody last night, I was talking with somebody, like, well, is it worse than like a William Shatner record? And I was like, it is because you can never accuse a William Shatner record of sort of a coded racism. <laughs> Yeah. And you kind of can with the with the DD record. It's so ill advised. Yeah, it's so ill advised. Well, like who was in his ear at the time? Like, that's dude, the thing. Like the band. That's the thing. Like who let this happen? And I get it. Like addict personality. Mm-hmm. You know, he's gonna he's gonna play to his own drummer to a certain extent, no matter what. But where are your friends? <laughs> Where's the one? Where are your friends to step up and be like, this is terrible. <laughs> this has to stop. Yeah. Um, and even he, you know, you, you watch like documentaries and interviews afterwards, even he knows it was ill-advised yep. eventually, but not soon enough to fucking stop it in its tracks in the late 80s when he's fa-fa-fa-fa-fa-fa-fa-fa funky man. Good Christ. What a mess that record is. But yeah, the Ritz was, um, to God, I saw the Dead Milkman there, I saw the Dickies there, I saw, um, and then like a lot of not, I guess I saw Chuck Berry there. Really? Uh, I uh, at the, so at the same time you're kind of you've got seems like very divergent tastes. Yeah, but I also, you know, I mean, we're well, not just not into straight up hardcore is what I mean more. You know, I mean, I mean there was there was plenty of that too. But I mean, the Chuck Berry, the jump from it's all three chords, yeah, well, you know, definitely. it's all blues, you no, know, yeah. and and Chuck Berry felt like a pretty organic. There were other punk kids in that show mm-hmm. um, because I think. You know, if, if you're truly a Ramones fan, you understand their roots and where they came from. And it isn't just the Stooges. It's all that 50s stuff, too. Um, and so I would have seen uh, I would have seen that stuff uh, there as well. And the Ritz was a great place. It was an old, beautiful, like, Art Deco ballroom with a big chandelier at the top. And they would show crazy videos in between the bands. And um, saw the Bad Brains there a couple times. Uh, and it was uh, Fishbone. Um it was just a really, really fun place to see a show. Do you ever see the Chromags? Uh, did I ever see the Chromags? I don't think I saw the Chromags. I for I, I 
they were a little too metal. I mean, mm-hmm. I appreciate the Chromags. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the Chromags, and God, Mackie was a fucking drummer. Good He's God. He's a great drummer. Um, and it's why, have you ever seen Style Wars? You know that documentary about early New York graffiti? No, I haven't. Oh, it's like a, it's an amazing documentary about kind of like '82 okay. New York graffiti. Oh wow, break dancing. They yeah. got to Crazy Legs, and all the kids they're talking to were part of the same sort of graffiti circles as Mackie from the Chromex. So he's like an OG. All the hardcore kids were were, were tagging all yeah. over the place. All the hardcore kids had tags. Warzone were huge into the whole tagging thing. They had a massive graffiti, um, and they would and. It was pretty gross, but they the the Warzone women or yep. the small girl posse, you would see yep. SGP all over the Lower East Side. Yeah. Because um, uh, there was just no... Yeah, the, the resources were stretched so thin, they weren't even bothering with vandalism, so there was just graffiti everywhere. And it was the really... It was the old school pieces. It wasn't just tags. It was like these elaborate multicolored pieces with shading and bubble letters yeah. and like light reflection on it, you know? Um, so it was it was an interesting time to walk around and... That's one thing I miss about the old New York. The crime can go. That's fine. But the, the the street art was really exciting. It seems like it was like the Lower East Side was kind of like an island of, of lost children. Yeah. How it's portrayed. Yeah. And that's I think that's accurate. I mean, I didn't live down there, but it always felt kind of dangerous and exciting to go down there. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. I never, you know, as I said, I got mugged. But I never got mugged in the neighborhoods where I was supposed to get mugged. <laughs> You know, I never got mugged on the Lower East Side. I never got mugged in Morningside Park right near Columbia. I would get mugged on, like, the Upper East. I'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> Come on, man. I'm just I'm just leaving this bodega. I have $2 on me. the fuck is going on? Um, like, I'm on York Avenue, and a guy tries to steal my band instrument. I'm like, Come on, man. I was just on Avenue A. <laughs> um, when Tom Sharpling was on uh, the show, he talked about how there was kind of, like, this this comedy scene that starts going, like, kind of a club comedy scene. You had people, uh, you know, I think it was Mark Marin even hosted one of the nights that a lot of people went to. And oh, uh, Eating It? Luna? Yeah. Yeah. L- Luna, that's yeah. that's a club. Were you going to that stuff, too? Were you aware yeah. of that stuff at the same time? That's that's 90s. That's, that's 90s. We're right into, like, late 90s at this point. And I was starting to go there as a fan and then eventually started to go there as a, as a practitioner yeah. with... Um, with my sketch group, The Naked Babies, okay. which was me, Rob Cordry, Brian Husky, Seth Morris, and um, all of whom have, they weren't quite, they weren't quite as into uh, uh, punk as I was, but they all have big indie rock backgrounds. And they were all, everybody I just mentioned was at Matador 21. Yeah. Um, Jason Manzoukas was at Matador 21. We were all just hanging so out. We wild. all got a block of seats and, and, uh, <laughs> And hung out, and then would like, and then during the day we'd see like Yola Tango at the Liberace Museum. Like, okay, sure, that's a thing that happens now. <laughs> well, I guess like you know, jumping back, that that scene is also rising at the same time that you're going to these, I guess, hardcore shows. Were you like aware of the, you know, the Dust Devil kind of New York stuff that was happening? The Not Mar- really. Matador no, stuff? I mean, you, you you heard about it, and you would see posters for like Band of Susans and stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, who were some other bands from that time that were that were a little more artsy? Antietam come to mind. Um, obviously, Sonic Youth are on their biggest scent at this point. They signed to Geffen around 87, 88. Um, and I, I've always liked Sonic Youth. And that was the last time, that Matador 21 show was the last time I saw them. Did you see them back then? Were you like going to their shows at all? I would have seen, the first time I saw Sonic Youth was probably not till 91, probably not till. Um, uh, Goo came out. Okay, uh, I was a, I was a I was familiar with them, and I had the Death Valley sixty nine twelve inch, but I don't think I saw them live until well, the early nineties. Well, that's what like was it a divide for you? Where you're like, 
you know, Death Valley 69 is definitely probably the most punk yeah. sounding of all the Sonic Youth records. Yeah. Were, were you like, this isn't punk enough? You're young at this point, obviously, too. But It wasn't that it wasn't punk enough. It was, you know, it's honestly, it's for me, before it's about the the noise, it's about the, it's about the hooks, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and that's something that's sort of a through line in my life. So I tend to gravitate towards sort of the more melodic punk rock. I, I... I, I grew up on the west side of Manhattan, so I'm, I've got a huge. I'm a huge musical theater fan mm-hmm. too, and that's something I've never really been able to negotiate. Those two camps. Well, the Mumps. Um, do you know the Mumps? The Mumps. Lance Loud, who was on this. Oh one, yeah. He, his band. He he had this band, the Mumps, that is like very much like. I wonder what a musical theater band influence band would sound like if they were in the CBC. I got to track that down. I will okay. definitely. I will give you some links after. Do you know a band from Brooklyn called the World Inferno Friendship absolutely. Society? They do a nice Bird merging. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. They do a great merging of like sort of Kurt Vile show tunes mm-hmm. with punk aggression, and mm-hmm. they uh, they have yet to put out a bad album. I like those guys a lot. And it really felt like I'm, they've been around forever. Yeah, they, I, I remember them being around when Egghead was around. Yeah, they were, they've been around yeah. like mid '90s. Yeah, and it felt like eventually the world caught up to them, and people realized like, oh, this is this kind of awesome because they would play to like I remember going to see them to like 10 people 15 people they're fucking fantastic Fantastic. I finally saw them in LA a few years ago they played a a place called the Key Club which isn't there anymore on the strip Mm -hmm. like right like the the sexiest cheesiest part of LA like not the east (laughs) not the east side not Silver Lake not Echo Park they played the fucking strip and um it was so crazy but they were they were a blast live they were so fucking fun those guys Mm -hmm. um so it, it's either, like, and by hook, I can mean, like, vocal melody or, like, really good riffs. Like, you guys do really well. Like, DOA did really well. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. DOA are a band that should have crossed over to my mind because fucking Dave Gregg, man. Yeah. Fucking Dave Gregg. That, if you like ACDC, what stops you from liking <laughs> DOA? It's just faster, but it's the riffs are insane. Yeah. The riffs of World War Three. Mm-hmm. Uh, you take anything off Bloody But Unbowed, mm-hmm. um, or fucking I still like Let's Wreck the Party. I don't give a shit what people say. I think that's a fun record. <laughs> that is a controversial opinion. You, you, I know. You I know. On all the controversial records. I, I'm in. I'm in. I'm all in on Let's <laughs> Wreck the Party. Day, end uh, of the century. Fuck everybody. Party. I like what I like. Um, I, I'm, I'm with you. I like the second. Uh, like. Infamously, I guess I like the uh, second DYS record more than the first. So really, whoa, okay, I'm, I'm in. Ballsy. Okay, I'm in for a penny. I'm in for a pound when it comes. Have to you this heard stuff. what is it called? That bad religion record. Yes, into the unknown. Into the unknown. That's the one. <laughs> which, which is actually aged not that bad. Well, it it, it sounds at the time it was just like what the yeah. fuck. But uh, you listen to it now and you're like, oh, this is from the '80s, no yeah. question. But yeah. it's a. Yeah. So I went to school at Ithaca College. Okay. That's where I went to college. And on and I, I did college radio while I was there. I didn't do theater. Um, I was terrified of public speaking. I got over my fear of public speaking by doing college radio. That was like how I, I could talk to tons of people and not mm-hmm. see them. And that's how I, I got over a massive phobia. On a whim one day, I opened up the Ithaca phone book and looked up Greg Graffin, and there he was. Because <laughs> he was teaching at Cornell. Yeah. Teaching evolutionary bio at Cornell. Called him up. And it's like, hey, do you want to come on my college radio show? He goes, mm, can I bring my own records? I was like, you absolutely can. Greg Graffin shows up at the college radio station. We do like a two-hour interview where he brings Into the Unknown, which was out of print at the time. That, he brought and that in? He brought it in. And he's like, yeah, this is our journey record. And um, I don't know if you've ever met the guy. <laughs> Gift to Gab. Terrific interview. I met him but just briefly, never to talk to him like this. Terrific interview. Yeah. Um, and... Um, 
it was also crazy too because he was like 27 and we were all like oh my god 27 is ancient <laughs> assholes um, but um but he um he came over brought a stack of fucking records and a lot of it was stuff it was a lot of southern california stuff that i'd not heard of yeah i was going to say what did he bring into play you know it was stuff that i, I can't even remember um there was one song called trudy and the band Trudy. I can't remember what the band was, but it was another OC band. Is it on like a Posh Boy single? It was. It was. It was on a. It was on a full length. It was okay. on an LP. Okay. Um, and he, I want to say he brought like, what he brought a DI record. But we talked a lot about his band, and we talked a lot about um, uh, other bands. And then we talked about the other music he liked and he, he went off on Tom Petty and how much yeah. he enjoyed Tom Petty and how much he enjoyed the B-52s and, and that was always really interesting when you talk to punk rock people about the non-punk stuff they listen to and I've been surprised at how many people have a one foot in punk rock and one foot in mm-hmm. show tunes even um, yeah, there's that B-first in the Gimme Gimme's uh, record that's all uh, it's all show tune covers yeah well I think it's, it's it seems like it's for a lot of people myself included that's like the first stop like when you you like I was a, I remember liking Tommy and and yeah like, like anything that was a rock opera record right. I loved in addition to Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff yeah but, yeah but. I, and it's weird because there's something the connection is hard to find because there's something so bombastic yeah. and and huge about the way that those records sound compared to the kind of raw stuff that we were also listening to but for for whatever reason there's a through line mm-hmm. maybe it's sense of humor I don't know what it is but it, maybe it's the farcical nature but one's blown out to the extreme and one's reduced to the the minimal maybe that maybe it's that kind of that sort of uh, that sort of dialectic that is 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 drawing me in it's not the middle of the road no it's not it's not the eagles it's not no thank god it's not the eagles that's something I've just never like I've grown a lot more tolerant of classic rock as I've grown older you know when I was when I was a when I was a snotty little punk rock teen, I was like, fuck everything before 1977. Kiss my ass. But, um, you know, but you, in doing that, you miss out on some good stuff. You know, you are missing, you're, you're depriving yourself of the better Zeppelin stuff. I remember, uh, Ignoring Springsteen for years because Jello Biafra called him Bob Dylan for jocks, and I was like, "Oh, I want no part of that. <laughs> I don't want Bob Dylan for jocks. Good oh. lord!" Um, so, oh, that's um, so cutting. It's so cutting. It's so cutting. It's so cutting. And here's the thing: two things. It's true, and two, is that so bad? Is Bob Dylan for jocks no. the worst thing in the world? That's still pretty good, right? Yeah. Um, so it's. And I imagine um, a lot of jocks listen to Bob Dylan at different times too, right? Sure, so. sure. Um, it's very, very dismissive. Um, very dismissive, but um, but funny. Um, that's it. We haven't even talked about the Kennedys. The Kennedys well, yeah. used to make me laugh uh, in their darkly funny way, mm-hmm. but they're they were doing edgy satire and they were the only one of the few bands that were flipping the lens around and criticizing punk rock from within mm-hmm. in a way that a lot of everyone else it's very easy to hit Reagan it's very very easy to hit Moroni yeah <laughs> but to turn around and be like what about the jocks who are coming to the shows you know yeah. what about the the guys who want to be anarchists but aren't considering who's going to fix the sewers you know <laughs> they were they were turning a a a microscope onto the scene itself in a way that not a lot of other people were doing. And it was really challenging and fun. Who were speaking to your melodic sensibilities locally? Like, I know there's Bug Out Society. Fucking nobody. Bug Out Society were hilarious. And I loved Bug Out Society. And I I saw them at a bunch of... They played a great place called the Lismar Lounge, which was this under... It was on, like, 
first or A, and it was underground. Okay. Um, and Bug Out Society were fucking hilarious. <laughs> they were so good. I loved those guys. Um, um, this is awesome how deep you go. Like, these are, like, the, the bands I'm throwing out are, like, some of the most obscure bands. Bug Out Society were a deep cut, but, you caught, but they caught me at exactly well, that's the moment. They, they were... the band. They were... Because there was a little bit of a hip-hop influence. Yeah. They were versed in um, in hardcore, but were just too funny for that scene. Yeah. They were definitely. just way too funny to hang with, like, Youth of Today or um, or Bold, who were called Bold. <laughs> <laughs> what about, do, what do you guys sound like? We're Bold. Got it. Okay. <laughs> but there's also that being, I think they were from Connecticut, too, Grudge. That was, like, the parody straight-edge band. I don't remember them. I remember Crucial, Crucial Youth. Crucial Youth, definitely Crucial Youth. Crucial Youth, who I think were from Ithaca. Yeah. Um, and Crucial Youth, who, God damn, Crucial Youth. Remember that that interview they gave in Maximum Rock and Roll that everybody took seriously, and the next <laughs> issue was filled with letters of like, fuck these guys! How dare they tell me I can't write, rewind my videotapes? Oh, my God. If you don't know what we're talking about, you have to Google Crucial Youth, because Crucial Youth were so straight-edge. They were a joke straight-edge band, and they were so straight-edge and ethical. They had a song called Be Kind, Rewind, which in high, is the most dated thing in the world now. Yeah. Listen to us. Yeah. They, they also like you know they covered the modern lovers too like they're a band that I think had some deep cut kind of taste as well like you know who you know oh you know who actually scratched my melodic itch in New York um, and again I liked seeing Youth of Today and I thought those riffs were great Gorilla Biscuits yep. were able to um, they covered the Buzzcocks mm-hmm. you know they would cover City Round at Home and they were they had a tongue in cheek quality that was in short supply in that scene. That was an earnest bunch. Oh, shit, those guys. Um, And they had... um, And even when they were kind of... They were sort of trolling before they had the word for it. You were the Better Than You song that they had for a while. Um, And they were just kind of fucking with everybody in a way that... Well, they're named after drugs, right? Gorilla Biscuits. Yeah, and I don't know that they were actually... They were... They might not even have been straight edge. I think they were all straight edge, but uh, I don't know how long some of the edges lasted on some Right, of right, right. God, those shows were... People would just scream out, straight edge, in between songs. Just <laughs> screaming out. And I didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't do drugs. Um, and even I was just like, but I mean, are we going to define ourselves with this? I guess we are. Okay. <laughs> and I get, like, if you're coming out of the scene that birthed... You know, the fucking Dead Boys and Jim Carroll. Yeah, you maybe want to overcorrect. I get that. Um, But it was still, like, so... You know, you hear the stories about the guys running around, like, knocking beers out of people's hands. Like, can't we just all get along? (laughs) Did you ever X up? Uh, I X'd up occasionally, just as a sort of a sense of, like, let's try this on. And I, I would look at them on my hands, and I had the Sharpies... You know what Straight Edge offered me? Straight Edge offered me a bargaining chip with my parents. Mm-hmm. So I could go out to shows in the 80s in New York and come back at 3 a.m. But yeah. to the ex, I'm crucified, Mom. It's okay. I'm not out there doing drugs. I'm going to come home high on Diet Coke and live music. Well, you know, like, and I obviously grew up in a very different place growing up in Toronto You know, a few years later. But... Could you imagine as a parent letting your kids out? Fuck no! <laughs> and it's such a safer time right now. It's such a safer time. Fuck no. What I think, it my, my, my parents are no longer with us. And I think I eventually got to a point where I apologized to my mom. Because my mom lived long enough for, for her to become a grandparent. And for me to be like, I don't know how the fuck yeah. you let me out in Ed Koch's New York to go see 
anything <laughs> to let you go to midnight mass, let alone a fucking punk show. Yeah. Um, bless her heart. I, the first time I went to the Dickies, they went on so fucking late that my mom bought a ticket and came in to get me. And but then stayed so the dick until the Dickies finished, and then said, "We're not staying for the toy dolls. Get the fuck out of here!" And, and and took me home in a cab, furious with me, and I was furious with her. And now, since then, I have I we'd had a talk. I'm so sorry I stayed out so late. That must have been nightmarish for you. Yeah, as a parent, it's a whole new set of rules now. Ugh. It's funny you say the toy dolls. I don't think I've, anyone's brought them up to me in a long time until yesterday, when my dad called me and was like, "Do you know the band the Toy Dolls? I just really got into them." Your dad? My dad. Fantastic. He was into punk kind of as it was happening, but just very much like casually because okay. it was just adjacent to what was going Is on. Is he sort of like a boomer, He's a young a, boomer? Yeah, British boomer. Oh, okay. He was into like a lot of 60s stuff as it was kind of happening. Okay. But then like, you know, was too old to kind of get into punk. Right. But was definitely aware of it. But so funny, Toy Dolls was, he called me yesterday to tell me he just got into him. Chops for days, those guys. Chops for days. All those incredible guitarists. Great band. Could have been doing anything, just decided to do punk rock. But, like, it's amazing. It speaks to, I don't know, like, as a parent, I I don't want to say I'd be scared of punk. But I'd be concerned. I'd be concerned. I would absolutely be concerned, yeah. And, I mean, again, I would come home and, like, oh, that was amazing. Where are your glasses? And why is there a scratch on your cheek? I'm like... I met Dag Nasty. <laughs> I met I no, these guys invited me into their van. It's okay. <laughs> these grown men drove me home in their van. Uh, no, they didn't drive me home. They had to get to. They, I think they had to get to Connecticut. But even like um, that's yeah. the other thing about punk rock too is there's almost like a Neverland where you're hanging out with grown ass adults. Grown ass adults as a young kid. Yeah, it was. It, those lines were very blurry. And then very I don't blurry. know if you ever went to. Um, if you ever ended up like backstage at one of the the serious northeastern hardcore shows, there were rumors they were, it was more homoerotic than most of the gay bars I've been into. Yeah. It was just like you'd go to the backstage and it's just shirtless guys hugging everywhere, and they're all ripped. They're all just in phenomenal shape, gym rats to the last Prison of them. Shape. Yeah, and I and I literally have been to gay bars since then that were not that loaded sexually yeah. as backstage at like a Youth of Today show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never, you know, I never heard names. There were just sort of a general like, oh, there's a sort of don't ask, don't tell policy in that scene. Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, the um, God, we're all over the place, and it's great. They, no. they they set aside a half hour for this interview, and I was like, "You're hilarious. You are fucking hilarious." Well, I gotta say, like, we are coming up to an hour, and I'm not going to keep you all day because I know you got a lot of commitments. And uh, I would love to have you back, though, for a part two. I, say the word. I'd love to. I'm so I'm so I, thrilled. Because there's like so much stuff that I thought I was going to wind up talking to you about today, having no idea that we're going to spend the whole time talking about deep cut revelation hardcore. Kind of like, I, um, I, but I did want I, I get no credit for knowing the problem, children? No, no. <laughs> I definitely had no idea we were going to go there. But I wanted to kind of... There's this there's this moment that you would have been there for where the, the hardcore scene in New York kind of becomes a lot harder and becomes a lot tougher... And uh, a lot of people left, right? Like, that's the, the start of, like, you know, a whole other scene kind of in other clubs, Born Against, and all these bands kind of get going, and there's a whole other separate scene that starts up. And that coincides with me leaving for college. Yeah, I was going to say, were you aware of that stuff that, happening? I, I knew it was going on. I yeah. was coming back to New York frequently, but it I was hearing from friends who stayed and went to, like, Hunter or or went to CUNY, um, City University of New York, who were like, yeah, the scene, the shows are different now, man. The shows are, it's it's less fun now. Yeah. It's a little less fun now. 
and um, it did get harder, and um, I was kind of out of it. I, I think for a little while there, I got a little more into you know what Beavis and Butthead would have called college rock, yep. and and but that also you know in turn that got me into Super Chunk, who were the best of all possible worlds. One hundred percent. We were just talking about that yeah, earlier about the the idea of of being firmly indie, but but being also unmistakably punk. Yeah. While still surprising you with chords that you didn't expect coming, and from there it's a quick transition to Archers of Loaf and a lot of other stuff that was going on on the East Coast at that time, um, and then I found. Then in my in my twenties, after I graduated from college, and I was kind of floating around, not really sure what I wanted to do, and I got my my college band back together, and we realized that given our gifts, we were going to be a punk band, no matter what our pretenses pretenses were, and that got us into some stuff that was going on at the time in the nineties. Um, label out of Corvallis, Oregon called Mutant Pop. Yep. Uh, amazing label. Amazing label. Impossible. Really hard to find that stuff on the streaming services too. Yeah. I don't know what what. Uh, Tim ha- has done with those masters, or if he just can't get them on there, but they put out a, a great band called Sicko, great Seattle pop punk band um, that we played with a couple times. Dillinger 4, too. They did I the think first, Dillinger 4, yeah. One of the first singles for D4. Yeah, Dillinger 4 were great. Automatics, too. Yeah, the Automatics. Oh, yeah. fuck, the Automatics were great. So yeah. we looked like the Automatics. We were three yeah. guys in glasses um, doing kind of garagey punk rock. Um, and um, we would we toured a little bit on the East Coast. We went as far as uh, Athens, was as far south as we went, and then as far inland as like Lexington, Kentucky, maybe. And you know, it was really interesting. We did like like the house shows and the hall shows that were incredibly lucrative, and the club shows where you just hemorrhaged money. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it didn't you barely paid for gas. You know, it was real typical punk rock shit. You know, and it was like, what a band would sell merch. Like you could sell CDs. Yeah, you could sell CDs, and you would better fucking sell. You could still sell seven inches at the time. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you could absolutely still sell uh, records. Um, in ninety six, ninety seven was our was our, our big active time. It's funny now our our least. Pressed format for our last record was a CD. I understand vinyl uh, has has gone up. It's become it, like yeah. a prestige thing now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's like it makes sense because you know if you're owning a physical format of something, you're just doing it for for the love of. Yeah, like, there's no real reason to own it like that. But, but it's not. I like the heft. Same here. I've, uh, I have a terrible record collection. I like the 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 heft of vinyl. I I liked um, I liked. If you if you bought vinyl, you were more likely to get a lyric sheet yep. than if you were than if you bought a cassette. The art's bigger too. Art's bigger. Everything about it is is better. But I, um, uh, you know, I remember like going through lyric sheets and like sending fan letters to bands and like having the singer write me back and just like, what is happening? Uh, <laughs> Take that, guys. We're into new kids. <laughs> One thing I gotta ask before we go okay. um, is when you did Road Trip, had you seen Hated? Had you were you aware of? Oh uh, yes, I had actually. I had seen Hated and um, uh, which was the other Todd Phillips film. Yeah. I had seen Hated and it's because that was his only. He did that and then he did that weird frat movie that was like just on tape trading. Yeah, circles. and and frat house. Is, there's some controversy around that because there's some talk that a lot of it was staged. Staged, yeah. Um, Hated is is pretty raw. Yeah, no, it was. It was um, Todd's a big punk guy. Todd's really into punk rock. Todd oh, put a cramps on in the beginning of uh, the Hangover. Yeah, um, he he likes a lot of punk rock. I can't remember where Todd's from. I haven't seen him in years. Um, but for years after road trip, he he I would see him at like mutual friends' weddings. He'd be like waiter, and I'm like all right. <laughs> 
Let that be my legacy. I am the waiter in Road Trip. I'm one of the waiters in Road Trip. Horatio Sands is the other one. I'll take it. <laughs> like the guy in the dog cage from Frat House. <laughs> I should. God damn. What a missed opportunity. Um, but yeah, no, I was aware that... Um, it's funny. It really does... It comes up more than you would think um, in sort of day-to-day. And it's always sort of like... You, I mean, obviously, you're in a band and you do this, and and there's you're going to find overlap a lot quicker. But when you discover it, in you're working on like a sitcom, and mm-hmm. you discover like one of the writers has some massive record collection, it's suddenly like the two of you have found some sort of secret handshake. Yeah, and it's incredibly satisfying when you guy when you find a guy who, you know, worked on Friends, who has you know like a, a bunch of backlogs of MRRs in his uh, in his basement. Yeah, or like it's, no, it's that's that's why I live to do this thing. Like you know. Finding out that Josh Brolin was in an early incarnation of Rich Kids on LSD. He was? Yeah. Really? Yeah, they had a different name, but he was the drummer. Josh Brolin was an RKL. Fuck off. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know... Friend of a friend. Really? Yeah. Well, that's crazy. Tell him, uh, tell him I appreciate his early work and that I've never heard it, but I definitely where it went. That is so <laughs> wild. My favorite... My favorite um, punk rock connection is the fact that Moby continues to claim that he was in Flipper and Flipper continuously denies, denies it. <laughs> I, love I know. That. I interviewed him recently about oh, yeah? it and he's like he's still sticking in. He's, he's like he's really like he's like I don't know what's these guys problem. That is but so fucking funny to me. One that I found out kind of recently this is crazy um, Moby did the art on the second white zombie or the sorry no Rob Zombie did the art on the Vatican Commandos second 7 inch. Hit, hit Squad for God? Yeah. Hit Squad for God. I had Hit Squad for God. No, is that the second? That's the first one. Oh, right? it is. Oh, I'm sorry. The okay. second one is the one. It's not a great drawing. The first one's got that weird kind of logo-y type thing. Well, it's like a cro- it's like a, cross a soldier thing. on a cross. Yeah, or something, yeah. yeah. And then the second one had the this Vatican like, Commandos. Guy burning kind of thing. Vatican Commandos were a band that I bought just off of that tie- that name. <laughs> I was like that band name's got to be good and pretty good. Um, uh, that's so crazy. That's yeah, so fucking funny. Vatican Commando. Small punk world. It really is. It is very small punk world. This has been amazing. This John. has Thank been you so, so much. This come is back a for dream a dream come true. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Thank you, John, for coming on the show. And I, I'm much more excited that I'm letting on with my voice right now, but it is that shot. So I'm not going to blather on anymore other than to say that John will most definitely be back for a part two. Uh, Jonah has just come back to the hotel room from the gym and he's stripping down beside me right now. So I should probably uh, let you go. And so I can deal with this situation. Um, <laughs> change that. Ah, fuck it. I'm going to leave that. <laughs> okay. A little Easter egg for They know, they know what goes on. When uh, Fucked Up finishes the show, Joan and I go back to the room and... Strip down, hang out for a second in a communal schwitz. Yeah, and then I force Joan to listen to me talk to myself into a microphone. Uh, so Jonah's going to hop in the shower. I'm going to hop off and I'm going to, uh, you know, get get going, try and get my voice back before I play a show tonight. Right now, Fucked Up's on tour with the Black Lips. If you're hearing this when it comes out, check out some of these shows. They're going to be... Oh, there's Jonah starting the shower. And next week on the show... Huge, huge episode. Unbelievably awesome big episode coming up next week. Next week on the show, it is the homie, the buddy, coming back for a part two, George Pettit of the band Alexis on Fire, of the band Dead Tired. But more important than all of that, 
of the greatest Canadian punk band ever, Bergenfield 4. George finally comes back for a part two, and it is a friggin' monster of an episode. I'm really excited for you to hear this one. That is next week on the show. Uh, once again, thank you, everyone, for listening. Go out there and make your own culture, and I will. Oh, no, sign your organ donor cards. you got to sign your organ donor cards, too. Uh, and, and that's it. Check out the wrestler's stuff, the, the wrestler at the wrestler's TV. Uh, we're going to be posting a lot of cool stuff from that show. I'm really, really, really excited for all you to see that. Oh, my gosh, I'm excited for you to see that. Thank you very much again to John Ross Bowie. Check out Four Chords and a Gun, and uh, that's it. I'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Love you. Sorry about the voice. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry at all. I'm kind of sorry, I really, because this is going to be around forever, and my voice is going to be shot on this thing forever. So I'm kind of sorry about that. But I'm, I'm not apologizing to you because my voice is fucked up. It's just the reality, you know? You want the reality sometimes. Okay. i got to roll a joint. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.